We'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 through 53, verse 6, and then 53, verses 10 to 11, which is all going to be up on your screen. And then a little bonus I threw in after I got the scripture to the folks upstairs handling the screens, uh, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. So give your attention to the word of the Lord. Isaiah the prophet declares, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, they then shall see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. And rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then skipping forward to verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. And Hebrews 12 verse 2 looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this is your word to us. We we are thankful for your word as your message to us, a message that indicts us and gives us hope at the same time, that points to us our sinful condition and at the same time points outside of us to your remedy, to your cure, to our hope, which is in you. Illuminate your word for us this morning. Open our eyes and open our lips. 
Open our eyes to see your truth. Open our lips to declare your praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're with us this morning and you're an outsider to the church, you may have heard this and think that is a powerfully brutal passage of scripture. And it really is. It describes the suffering and the relentless uh, attack upon Jesus, the Messiah, as prophesied by Isaiah in the Old Testament. And because of the timing of all this, the slide that you may have seen up there indicates this was, this was a sermon on faithfulness. And you can always see God's faithfulness in everything, and you'll see it here today. But the sermon really is entitled, The Joy of Being Jesus. The Joy of Being Jesus. And so if you hear that passage you probably think this is a strange way of approaching the joy of God. And in a lot of ways it is because it describes something very uh, tortured and hard to hear about what Jesus endured on the cross. But at the same time, it really is foundational to our understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ to understand how his suffering plays out and really is the foundation of all joy that we can ever share in. See, the joy of being Jesus is in seeing you redeemed. The joy of being Jesus is in seeing the fruits of his labor on the cross and seeing his effectual salvation applied to you. Now, we, as fallen creatures look for approval and craft an image that we present to the outside world. If we're honest with ourselves, every day we're kind of desperate to appear a certain way to the outside world. But what this passage of scripture teaches us is that the only foundation for true joy is to see, understand, and take in the fullness of the joy that Jesus finds in you. That's the only path to true joy. As I was thinking about this sermon, the idea of image and seeing and being seen played back through my mind because it's, it's really a repetitive theme throughout that section that I described in the Isaiah, the prophet, uh, and when I think about that in our current day, the first thing that comes to mind, seeing and being seen, is the selfie. And I don't know how many of you, most of you probably know what a selfie is. Some of you may not. But you know, the selfie is that thing where you kind of take your, your phone or a camera and you kind of get the camera lined up and you, you pout your lips a little bit and you, uh, you get your head at just the right angle. And uh, wait for me, I've got to Instagram this real quick. Uh, you, you want to appear a certain way before the world when you take this selfie, this image of yourself that you give to the outside world. And as I had recalled thinking about this, there were a couple of news articles that came to mind from a while back that I'd seen. One of them said that it is... The number of deaths attributed to taking a selfie in 2015 was greater than the number of deaths by shark attack. 
people will go to all sorts of bizarre lengths to get themselves in the perfect position for the ultimate picture of themselves. Another news article said that some psychologists had done some research and said, if you show people pictures, and one of them is a picture of you taking a selfie, and another one is a picture of you taken by someone else, you think you always look better in the selfie, and everybody else always thinks you look vain and narcissistic and look better when someone else is taking your picture. And so from our vantage point, especially if you're gathered here in the church today, you probably look at that and think, you know, that is kind of, is kind of vain and narcissistic. You may think, well, I take a selfie, but I don't go to that direction. And, uh, but that is a peculiar feature of our age. We might be tempted to think that. But what the scriptures describe is something very different, that this idea of wanting to present an image to the world isn't new to us. Think back to the garden where Adam and Eve have just sinned. And before their sin, they enjoyed a perfect communion with God. And after their sin, what do they say? We were naked and ashamed. They didn't like the image that they were presenting to God once they had sinned and their evil was now on the surface and able to be known. Think of the Pharisees that Jesus criticized and said, look, you Pharisees want to go out into the streets and pray so you'll be seen to have the right image. You Pharisees want to hang the phylacteries of little scriptures around your necks so that you'll be seen as someone who is intimately connected with the word of God. This is all for an image to be seen. And even Paul in his letter to the church in the Galatians describes them as saying, you know what? These, these bullies who want to force you to abide by the letter of the Mosaic law They are making much of you so that you would make much of them. It's kind of a mutual vanity exercise. So not only is this a feature of our age, it's just a feature of fallen humanity. So let's take a look and see how the prophet Isaiah approaches this subject with us. See, we all long to be seen and recognized and to have an image. But the only one that truly counts is the image of us seen by the one we despised and rejected in his sacrificial suffering and death. So let's look back at Isaiah chapter 52. And and I started Isaiah chapter 52 because we're all familiar with Isaiah 53, but Isaiah 52 is really where the prophet's thought starts to come out and gives it some completion. So he says... Behold, my servant shall act wisely. And he says this to kind of give us a start on a high note. He's talking about Jesus. The servant will act wisely. It'll come to a good end, but it's about to get really bad. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And then we kind of go off a cliff really quickly. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many 
nations. So Isaiah is talking here about the appearance of Jesus. Appearance is something that always happens between two people. Because to appear, you have to appear to someone else. So Isaiah introduces us as the audience acting upon Jesus here at the end of chapter 52. And you notice this this comparison that Isaiah makes. He says, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, so shall he sprinkle many nations. What Isaiah is getting at is to say, If you want to understand the nature and the depth and the breadth of the blessing of Jesus upon the nations, it is proportional to how inhuman he looked in his death. That is the measure of the blessing. And Isaiah kind of tips his hand here, showing that the Gentiles will be blessed, that he will sprinkle many nations. In other words, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, the blood would be sprinkled out as an act of uniting us to the sacrifice. And so Isaiah says, that is what happens to the suffering servant. His blood sprinkles, and not just Israel, it sprinkles all of you, the Gentile nations, and binds you to him. Then Isaiah goes on to spend what I think is, should reasonably be understood as, as, a painful amount of time on the pain and suffering of Jesus. He says, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. And we might think like our our experience with little plants is probably like kindergartners. Oh, your kindergartners have a little, you know, exercise in the class. They're going to practice growing bean plants and it's cute, right? He's saying that it was nothing. It was nothing. A root growing out of dry ground is doomed to failure. It is frail. It is worthless. That's the point that Isaiah is getting across. And he says, he had no form or majesty that we should look upon him and no beauty that we should desire him. Notice that word desire. No beauty, no form that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted by grief. So, In telling us he was despised and rejected, Isaiah makes it very plain that our participation in the suffering of Jesus was active, that we were involved. And you might think, I wasn't there. I wasn't involved. I I had no participation in this. You know what? Neither did Isaiah. Isaiah was giving this to us as a prophet hundreds of years before it transpired. And Isaiah says, look, even though I'm a prophet and I will be long dead by the time the suffering servant arrives, I am a participant in this. You are a participant as well. And we'll talk about why a little bit later. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised And we esteemed him not. I mean, so gory and so brutal and so frankly ugly in his death that we couldn't even look at him. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
He was pierced. He was crushed. He had chastisement upon us. Wounds that were deep. And iniquity laid upon him. This was what Jesus endured on the cross. And by now, you got to be thinking, can we get to the part about joy? Can we get to that part? This is brutal. So let's do it. Verse 10. It was the pleasure of the Lord to crush him. There's your joy. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. That word will kind of has a deeper connotation. I don't want you to get the idea that this was sort of an impersonal act of the father to send the son. It was an act of deep love to the son, but it was an act of pleasure. That's another meaning of that word. Uh, it, It has the idea of bending towards something, being kind of inclined and oriented and focused on that direction. This was the pleasure of the father to send his son to be sacrificed for you. So the joy starts to creep into this passage as we see that God has a bigger perspective than the sufferings and could see the joy that had been laid before the son. And you start to build up toward a climax. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Let's go back through that. What I want you to see right here, and this is is the critical part of the passage where the real sharp turn to joy enters the picture. Hebrew poetry often involves a device they call parallelism, which is to say that a Hebrew poet will give you an idea in one verse or section and repeat that idea from a different angle or adding more depth to it immediately following. So here that comes in where Isaiah says, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days... Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. You see that seeing kind of being repeated there. So what this does is it brings two ideas together. First, we see that he shall see his offspring. And who is that? Well, that's you. That's his people, the redeemed ones through the power of his sacrifice. And then we see... Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So we could kind of condense this and say, Jesus sees you and is satisfied. Even better, we can say, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see you and be satisfied. And look at it this way. The death of Jesus from Jesus' perspective, is a lens or a prism through which he sees you. 
you get this idea that Jesus has suffered. Jesus has died on the cross. And his soul is in deep anguish. I mean, we're, we're talking about a goal of joy that Hebrews points us to. But we can't forget that this was something that caused Jesus to sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. There was deep turmoil and anguish in the process. But out of this deep turmoil, out of this anguish, out of this pain, through the anguish, through the pain, Jesus looks. And you can kind of get this image in your mind of Jesus having died and being laid down and rising out of that anguish and pain. And what is the first thing he sees? He sees the beauty and the glory of your redemption in him. He sees you transformed. He loves you and fixes his love upon you. He knows you intimately and his joy is fixed upon you. Brothers and sisters, the joy of Jesus is to see you redeemed. It is that prism, that lens through which he views you. This is his joy. That is why the writer of the letter to the Hebrews could say what he says. Which is that we are looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, that's you. You are the joy that was set before him. Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the joy of Jesus to see you redeemed by the power of his blood. So this is more than about Jesus. You saw through Isaiah 52 and into verse uh, chapter 53 this repeated theme of looking and despising and looking and rejected and turning away our faces. <clears throat> you see, the prophet Isaiah understood this deep-seated need that went from the garden up through to the Pharisees and continues on to the age of the selfie to have an image, to be seen, to be approved of, and to be found worthy. And the prophet Isaiah said, look, all of the looking of man, all of the gaze of man is worth nothing in the end. Because what men despised is now their salvation and joy. The stone that the builders rejected is become the chief cornerstone. This is the source of all true joy for us. That you are are the joy of Jesus. And by way of application, let me suggest to you that it is 
probably fair to say that the central challenge of our lives is to live in light of this vision of Jesus that we are his joy. To live as though that were true. Because we don't, do we? Not consistently. If you're a Christian and you know the scriptures, you put your anchor on Paul's letter to the Romans where he writes with fervent expectation they will see and hear and understand that nothing, neither life nor death, nor any created thing can separate us from the love of God. And we want to believe that, right? And we do believe it. No matter what happens to me, nothing will separate me from the love and the joy of Jesus. Except like a really bad Tuesday morning. You know, when the kids are just acting up. I mean, that, that who wouldn't be separated by God's love from something like that? I mean... Paul, we think, oh, he's talking about like the really big picture stuff, like death and suffering and mayhem, being shipwrecked like Paul. Well, that won't separate you from the love of Jesus, but an argument with your spouse like that. The joy of being Jesus is in seeing you redeemed. So the perspective that Isaiah wants you to have is that every other set of eyes looking on you cannot truthfully contradict the set of eyes that Jesus has placed upon you in his redemption. His eyes communicate joy, they communicate love, they communicate peace, and they bind you that you cannot be separated from him. His perspective is the only perspective that counts, the only perspective that matters. So if you struggle with self-doubt, Isaiah is speaking to you and says, doubting yourself is above your pay grade. Doubting yourself is something you're not qualified to do. Thinking yourself worthless is something you have no credentials for. The credential to value you is earned only at the cross by Jesus himself. And he has placed the value on you of his very life. The great theologian, St. Augustine, put it this way. If, thinking of your frailty, you hold yourselves cheap, value yourselves by the price that was paid for you. The price of the life of Christ himself. You see, no matter what we may think of the eyes that look upon us, there will be eyes that despise and reject us. There will be eyes that turn away their faces because they cannot bear to look upon us. We will be despised and rejected by men. Maybe you feel the weight of that this morning. But Isaiah the prophet calls us to look to Jesus 
and see the world through his perspective, that he values you based upon the investment he has made, that out of the anguish of the soul, he sees and is satisfied. That word satisfied is the kind of word that we use when we say, I've been and had a great meal. I've had enough. I'm full. I'm satisfied. Jesus looks at his work on the cross to redeem you as that fully and deeply satisfying work of his whole enterprise of salvation. This is your redemption. This is your joy. So with the author of Hebrews, we must respond only one way. By looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Beloved, though you may search for meaning, significance, image, everywhere else, the only true fountain of your joy is in Christ and his view of you. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks knowing that you are faithful, that your joy is our joy, that everything that Christ has obtained by virtue of his life and death is now our possession, that we are seated with him at the right hand of you in heaven. That those of us who are called by Christ, who have responded in faith, have all these things. This joy is not something we must search out. It is a joy that has found us. And for those who are not called by Christ, may your spirit be here this morning, convicting them and drawing them to you. To be loved and to find true joy for the first time. Father, bring us home in your joy to live and to be with you forever. Let us live in the light of your joy here and now. Let us praise you with joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Alan.